hello again. I am Dr. Patrick Taylor and welcome to this symposium. I currently serve as the US Medical Director for the COVID Therapeutics Team at GlaxoSmithKline. And again, welcome to the symposium today, Pandemic in Practice, Impact of Viral Variants, Hyperinflation, and Vaccinations on COVID-19 Outcome. So a few disclosures uh, for myself and Dr. Deepa Gotour. So it's amazing to think that we're not even a year and a half into this pandemic when uh, the first reported death was back in January of uh, this past year. And in January 30th of this past year, the WHO declared COVID and SARS-CoV-2 as a global emergency. Subsequently, quickly, unfortunately, the global cases exceeded 10 million. And as of August 15th of last year, we were seeing almost 300 new COVID cases on a, on a global basis in a 24-hour period. Unfortunately, global deaths continue to grow and by July had exceeded over already 500,000. And we started to see the first variants come into our landscape. Uh, quickly, following August, where the first variants were detected in September, subsequent variants started to uh, appear. Uh, with this virus. And by October, unfortunately, uh, death had already surpassed, surpassed globally a million people. And then certainly uh, record-breaking time to reach uh, a vaccine for, and multiple vaccines now, uh, for the SARS-CoV-2 uh, infection, which continues to, to plague us globally. When we look at variants of concern, um, multiple issues around variants of concern. Certainly, as you can see, uh, as we move from left to right on the screen, uh, some have increased uh, transmission. So they actually increase the ability of the virus uh, to transmit from person to person. And then the other biggest concern is that some of these variants reduce the ability of some of the neutralizing monoclonal antibodies that have come into uh, our landscape, our therapeutic landscape. It reduces the impact and the ability of those monoclonal antibodies to actually uh, significantly reduce the concerns when you get COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. Certainly, viral variants continue to grow. Uh, in the landscape, and you can see the timeline on the bottom uh, from May of 2020 to the present time, and additional variants of concern uh, are on the horizon. On a global basis, I think we all know that uh, unfortunately COVID-19 is a global disease, and even though in a minute you'll see the United States, we are certainly uh, have improved in our rate of transmission and our mortality and ability to treat it. Uh, unfortunately, globally, in places like India and South America and Brazil, this still is fairly, is raging and unfortunately uh, catastrophic in many cases around the, the world. So you can see in the United States, this is as of May 11th, we have had over 32 million confirmed cases, now closely approaching 600,000 deaths, a number we could have never imagined uh, even a year, year ago. Uh, could never have imagined globally we would have be reaching 159 million cases and over almost 3.3 million deaths on a global basis. We certainly know that uh, 
predominantly uh, when you have the SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, it's predominantly a pulmonary or respiratory uh, type disease. And there are many other risk factors, comorbidities uh, that leave us susceptible as patients uh, to this disease. And I think most of us are familiar with cardiovascular disease. We have underlying diabetes or uh, morbid obesity and hypertension. Uh, you are at increased risk uh, for this virus. Um, and most of the patients that are in the hospital have some underlying comorbidity, although not 100%. I think the other thing that's very unusual or a bit unusual about this disease is despite the other comorbidities, age alone seems to be a significant risk factor. So if you look at this curve, it seems to, as you go through the different decades, it certainly increases. But once you get past the sixth decade of life and you start reaching your 70s and 80s, you can see it's almost a logarithmic you know, increase, unfortunately, in mortality uh, with COVID-19. So age alone uh, beyond the comorbidities uh, tends to. And there's many reasons and thoughts around that, because as we age, our natural immunity continues to decrease. Uh, there's thoughts that as we age, age the aging process, there is some inflammatory component of the aging process, and all of those things play into our, our increased risk of mortality in COVID-19. We also see some racial and ethnic minority uh, disparities. Now, this does not seem to be on a genetic basis. These uh, disparities seem to be much more on the social determinants of health, access to health, the social economic conditions, uh, that many of our ethnic population live in, the ability to not segregate, uh, to use public transportation, unlike many of us that could have worked from home, uh, these populations, and unfortunately in our ethnic group, uh, had to continue to be front-facing uh, despite uh, the pandemic. And so most of the disparities we see in these groups are under the social uh, determinants of health component. Certainly the way this virus enters, uh, it attaches to our cells through an ACE2 receptor. It's been primed and then subsequently enters our cells. And as you know, with many of our RNA viruses, it quickly then takes over your own cells, factories as it were, and quickly starts reproducing itself. Ultimately, as you see on the right side of the screen, uh, exiting uh, cells to re re continue to redo this over and over as uh, viral load continues to increase in, in our bodies. When we look at the disease progression, um, simplistically in some respect, it can be divided into three uh, distinct uh, areas from a disease progression. There's kind of early inoculation, very mild nonspecific symptoms consistent with many viruses out there where the virus is starting to multiply, the viral load is increasing and really the symptoms that we have are predominantly secondary to a viral response. As you get into that moderate second stage, which becomes more of the pulmonary stage, uh, we see in some patients viral pneumonia, but still localized predominantly in the respiratory tree. Uh, the viral response is decreasing, and then we're starting to see more of a host inflammatory response. And as you progress to a third stage of this disease, much more extrapulmonary, and a much more uh, defined by increased hyperinflation and less defined by a viral response uh, and then becomes fairly severe patients. These are the type of patients you see in the hospital in the intensive care unit with not only respiratory failure, but many other manifestations uh, throughout uh, other uh, organ systems. And now we'll turn to Dr. Gautour.
Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Deepa Gotor, and today I'll be talking about the role of hyperinflammation in uh, severe COVID-19 uh, illness. The main objectives uh, of my talk, of my portion of the talk, is to understand the immune response timeline with respect to the disease course, and also to understand how virulence affects different, I mean, how the virulence and different strains can affect the disease severity, and as well as uh, some of the host factors, and to understand the role of hyperinflammation in the development of ARDS. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about biomarkers for use of uh, uh, early, possibly early recognition and prognostication. And uh, we are gonna learn uh, the treatment options and guidelines that focus on severe and critical uh, cases and we'll explore um, future directions and um, future directions of, uh, of uh, research. So um, recently I took care of uh, this patient, a 73 year old gentleman uh, with past medical history of uh, hypothyroidism, atrial fibrillation and hypertension. He presented to us with a weak history of dyspnea, cough and diarrhea. And upon presentation, he had a fever of 102.3 and uh, had desaturation to 82% on room air. And uh, he tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 and uh, a trial of high-flow nasal cannula did not help in his improvement, either in the work of breathing or his uh, saturation. And on the right-hand side, you can see his uh, progression of uh, the disease on his chest X-ray where the infiltrates are minimal initially when he presented and became uh, more confluent. So about 80% of the cases actually recover. However, some of them go on to progress to this very severe, uh, severe and critically ill uh, disease. And this is kind of dependent on multiple, uh, multiple uh, factors, not just the viral factor, but also the host factors as well. Obviously, the uh, comorbidities like age greater than 65, uh, any uh, history of cardiovascular disease, uh, chronic pulmonary disease, uh, diabetes, cancer, immunocompromised status, et cetera, all that uh, also uh, plays in, in the role. So the main kinetics and the antiviral response initially are very decisive in the COVID-19 outcomes. Uh, the type 1 interferon response, um, actually, the, the type 1 interferon actually promotes the intracellular RNA degradation and viral clearance. And uh, you can see very clearly in this graphic rep representation in um, the difference in the type 1 interferon response in mild to moderate disease and compared to uh, severe disease. In the severe disease, we see that the type 1 interferon response is either delayed, as you see in the solid green curve, or it's, um, it's very subdued, as you see in the dotted green curve uh, below. So both of this, uh, either of these actually, leads to uh, increased viral load because of reduced clearance. Uh, there is hyperinflammation uh, related to the high viral load. Um, and uh, one interesting part that we've seen in most of these critically ill uh, COVID-19 patients is the lymphocytopenia. Uh, the lymphocytopenia has been uh, thought to be as a result of uh, uh, like more of an immune cell redistribution 
and accumulation of the lymphocytes uh, within uh, the lungs as well as in other lymphoid organs. So these acute inflammatory changes uh, affect the pulmonary mi microvasculature as well as the alveolar barriers and causes alveolar infiltration and uh, which converges into uh, leading to ARDS. And so this clinically is demonstrated by the, CD, the, by the CT findings. Um, sorry. Uh, by the CT findings. And um, the, the most common manifestation of, uh, uh, of the COVID-19 illness is the ground glass opacities. And it's commonly seen in about 83% of, uh, of the cases. In the early stages, the, the ground, sorry, um, the ground glass opacities are mostly peripheral in nature and subpleural in nature. And later with increasing exudation of the inflammatory fluid into the alveolar space um, and lung interstitium uh, causes extension and uh, worsening ARDS. And then uh, there is more fibrinous depos uh, deposition and exudate deposition in the alveoli, which reflects as like a widespread uh, consolidation. Uh, finally, the ground glass opacities uh, sort of dissipate, but uh, uh, causes the uh, areas of increased residual fibrosis. The NIH defines uh, uh, severe and critical COVID-19 uh, illness, and uh, the severe illness is actually defined by saturation less than 94% on room air, uh, PF ratio less than 300, uh, respiratory frequency greater than 30, or lung in infiltrates involving more than 50% of the lung field. The critical illness is all of this in addition to septic shock and or uh, multi-organ uh, dysfunction. So what are the potential impact of uh, the variants of concern? There's a possibility of increased transmissibility. Uh, there's increased severity of illness. Um, and there's a possibility that it may avoid uh, scientific diagnostic testing or uh, avoid natural or vaccine-induced uh, immunity. Uh, globally, variants are being, uh, you know, closely monitored and uh, they're trying to de uh, define the uh, impact on public health at this time. But the increased severity of uh, some of these variants of concerns uh, could be hypothesized due to uh, increased viral load due to decreased clearance and uh, this in, uh, in the fur further leading on to uh, hyperinflammation. So this is a very nice uh, study of 191 patients by, uh, by Zhu and his colleagues. Um, and uh, they were able to distinguish very clearly what is the, um, uh, the, uh, the impact of survival uh, with hyperinflammation. Uh, so they measured serial levels of D-dimer, which is a marker of coagulopathy. They measured serial levels of interleukin-6 cytokines. Uh, serial levels of serum ferritin, uh, which is a, a marker of macrophage activation, as well as lactate dehydrogenase, which is a marker of hepatic injury. And they were, they were able to clearly demonstrate the difference between the survivors that you see in the uh, blue bar graphs to the non-survivors. And uh, the, patient, the survivors had uh, lower uh, levels of each of these uh, biomarkers.
And as you're all aware, uh, there are multiple clinical trials that suggest actually the, uh, the cause of acute respiratory distress syndrome uh, due to hyperinflammation. Uh, and this is, um, uh, this is well demonstrated by the study here, the recovery trial, um, and uh, which showed that the use of dexamethasone for a total of 10 days reduced mortality, um, uh, reduced the 28-day mortality. And this, was, this benefit was only observed in patients who were either uh, requiring oxygen or who were requiring mechanical ventilation. And there was no benefit that was observed in patients who were uh, not on oxygen. Uh, similarly, there are other clinical studies of treatments targeting the interleukin-6. And they have not only demonstrated the physiological improvement in inflammatory markers, as you, as you can see in the, in the graphs, uh, after uh, IL-6 inhibition, the CRP levels very nicely came down, the temperature uh, came down, and the oxygen concentration, the requirement of oxygen concentration uh, came down as well with improvement in uh, their uh, saturation. So th this was the initial physiological uh, testing of uh, interleukin-6 inhibition. And further, uh, there were clinical trials uh, that showed initially they had conflicting results. The ones uh, that were done prior to uh, steroids being the standard of care. And then when administered with corticosteroids, they definitely saw mortality benefit uh, in certain patients, especially those who were either severely ill, rapidly deteriorating, or had a high inflammatory uh, response. And uh, we have reviewed the NIH COVID-19 uh, treatment guidelines, especially in the mild uh, to moderate disease. Um, the NIH guidelines um, has, um, uh, the, the guidelines actually um, uh, show uh, in severe to critical illness um, that uh, there's actually a paucity or reduce, I mean, reduced number of therapeutic options once the patients are, uh, are sicker, uh, requiring high flow nasal cannula or on mechanical ventilation. Uh, dexamethasone is uh, definitely um, um, uh, a therapeutic option uh, with, uh, with possible use of tocilizumab, especially in uh, very severely ill uh, patients. This was one of the newest uh, studies by DuPont and colleagues that was published in CHEST very recently. Um, and they were actually able to identify uh, by cluster analysis three separate uh, phenotypes in critically ill COVID-19 patients. Um, it's important to know that uh, the, three sub the three phenotypes, of the three phenotypes, one of them was a hyperinflammatory phenotype. And uh, they saw this in almost 20% uh, of patients, um, uh, in 20% of the patients. The other phenotypes were uh, reduced humoral immunity and uh, complement dependent uh, uh, phenotypes uh, as well. But today we will be talking, I wanted to uh, elaborate a little bit more on the hyperinflammatory uh, phenotype. So um, the, the central role um, in the hyperinflammation, uh, which is our focus here, is actually played by uh, GMCSF. 
With SARS-CoV-2 infection, uh, the naive uh, CD4 uh, T lymphocyte subsets, they undergo polarization and clonal expansion and uh, they, migrate to, they migrate to the lung and they polarize to T helper 17 cells. And majority of these acquire lung resident status. And they express really high levels of GMCSF and uh, a factor that is well known to us as a colony stimulating factor, but recently more recognized as, uh, a, cytokine, as a, a pro-inflammatory cytokine. So the GMCSF receptors are present on pro-inflammatory macrophages in the lungs. They're present on pro-fibrotic macrophages, as well as the alveolar macrophages. And uh, which obviously each of them have uh, their specific functions. And so once the GMCSF engages to the GMCSF uh, receptor, uh, this causes the intracellular signaling of the JAK-STAT pathway. And this pathway leads to further uh, secretion of further factors. And with this, um, the two main functions of the GMCSF with the release of these additional factors is one, to polarize mature myeloid cells into a pro-inflammatory phenotype. And then it activates the dendritic cells to uh, prime other uh, pathogenic T cells. And, um, uh, and, and this causes sort of a feed forward mechanism uh, for further cytokine release and further um, uh, worsening of uh, illness. So is GMCSF specific to COVID ARDS? So in this, um, in this uh, study by Hugh and colleagues, um, they, they compared COVID-19 ARDS uh, to that of uh, non-COVID ARDS. And uh, they measured GMCSF levels upon ICU admission and clearly saw an increased concentration in patients with COVID-19 ARDS. They also had very specific chemokine signatures um, with elevated chemokines, as well as they had sustained lymphopenia and delayed cellular activation. And in this study, they were also able to demonstrate that patients with COVID-19 ARDS had a higher 28-day mortality, 34%, compared to non-COVID ARDS, which was about 11%. So how about the variation of GMCSF level in moderate to severe uh, COVID-19? Uh, so this is a study where um, uh, on the left-hand side of the graph, you see the cytokine blood levels. So they, uh, they evaluated the levels of GMCSF as well as interleukin-17, which is also a pro-inflammatory cytokine. Uh, they looked at patients uh, who were healthy and compared it to uh, patients who, were, uh, who had COVID-19. And uh, this demonstrated clearly that the GMCSF levels were uh, elevated in patients with, um, uh, with COVID-19. And in patients comparing mild disease, mild to moderate disease to severe disease, the GMCSF levels were much higher in patients with severe disease. That's the purple dots um, in, the, uh, in the panel. They also looked at the cytokine levels in uh, bronchoalveolar fluid, and uh, they compared the GMCSF levels in patients 
um, with COVID-19 pneumonia versus bacterial pneumonia. And it also clearly showed that the GMCSF levels were higher uh, in patients with severe, uh, in patients with COVID-19 uh, disease when compared to uh, bacterial pneumonia. So this was a very even nicer elucidation of the levels of GMCSF across the WHO ordinal scale. On the left-hand side of the graph, you see um, uh, the, on the x-axis, you see the different uh, WHO ordinal scale and uh, the, the, the N in each of these ordinal scale. And as you can see, HET C means the healthy controls. And as you can see from healthy controls to, um, to the increased severity across the WHO ordinal scale, they were able to very nicely demonstrate that the GMCSF levels were uh, elevated um, across uh, one, uh, I mean, with the increasing in uh, the severity scale. They also did a subgroup analysis on patients uh, who were less than 70 years old and patients who were greater than 70 years old. And clearly they saw a, an increased uptick in the GMCSF levels in patients who were greater than 70 years old. Now, this could possibly be due to multiple, um, uh, multiple factors related to uh, age, uh, which causes um, uh, what is now known as inflammaging um, uh, with increased uh, hyperinflammation um, more pronounced in patients with, uh, uh, in patients greater than uh, 70 years of age. So in hypothesis, uh, I think inhibition of GMCSF um, has, um, will be able to mitigate hyperinflammation. It has, uh, it has propensity to reduce accumulation of neutrophils, monocytes, and macrophages in the inflamed tissue. It reduces the proportion of uh, monocytes and macrophages that polarizes into inflammatory phenotypes and uh, dampen the cytokine release. And overall, I think it's, a, it, it, um, it's hypothesized to mitigate hyperinflammation and improve, um, improve clinical outcomes. And, um, and yet there is so much to be uh, further studied um, in, uh, in this uh, arena of hyperinflammation. It's important uh, for further uh, research to kind of understand the mechanisms uh, that uh, changes the SARS-CoV-2 pathogenicity, understand the heterogeneous nature of uh, COVID-19 severity uh, in the host factors, and early identification of signature biomarkers, which could help in uh, prognostication uh, to explore targets of hyperinflammation to enhance you know, the current uh, COVID-19 therapeutic options and to explore targets possibly of sustained inflammation that could lead to long-term um, uh, consequences.